Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46 and 47 will be our text for today. We're going to look at both of these chapters. And uh, I'm going to read both of these chapters um, from, the, from the outset, from the get-go today. Uh, we're going to see the text, hear from God. This is his word. And, uh, and as we read, pay attention um, to what's there. And also, uh, let's read in a spirit of prayer, um, asking the Lord to open up our hearts to the truth of his word today. And this is the word of God, beginning in Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Arai, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Eshbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they are keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. 
May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. How beautiful is the word of God. Church family, I want to talk to you this morning about the promises we must believe. The promises we must believe. If we could go back, we're getting towards the end of Genesis. If we could go back and determine which word we have used the most throughout our study of Genesis, um, let me throw one out. We might have several words that we've used a lot, but, but let, me, let me toss one out for you and see if you agree with me. It would probably be the word promise. Now, we don't even see that word necessarily mentioned um, here, and sometimes we don't see that word specifically used, but as we have walked through Genesis, we have seen promise after promise after promise. And that makes sense when we understand what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is about God promising to rescue sinners and then seeing that promise through to its fulfillment. The promise started in Genesis chapter 3, right, where, where um, after the first man and woman sinned, God cursed the serpent who had tempted them to, them to sin. And then before God cursed the woman and the man and the earth, he made a promise. He made a promise, and that promise was that there would be a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent, the one who had tempted them to sin. It was a promise of deliverance. It was a promise to remove the curse of sin. It was a promise of life. It was a promise of salvation. But then we've seen throughout Genesis that God decided to fulfill that really big promise of salvation by making all sorts of we could say smaller promises, smaller in relation to that big promise. That's the way that he's going to keep his big promises through all of those smaller promises. So as he keeps these other promises, we see the pieces of the puzzle slowly begin to be put together and fall into place. And we see this big promise being fulfilled, this promise of a deliverer, this promise to remove the curse of sin, this promise of life and salvation. And so it makes sense that we have talked a lot about promises throughout our study of Genesis. And we're going to conclude these final chapters of Genesis thinking about promises. Now, there are two parts to a promise. First, the promise maker must make the promise, obviously, and then keep the promise. That's one part of a promise. The other part of the promise is that the receiver of the promise, the one to whom the promise is made, must trust that the promise maker is going to keep his word, is going to keep the promise. There must be a promise made and then faith on the one to whom the promise is made that that promise keeper is going to keep the promise. Now, God is the promise maker. We are the promise receivers. Now, if you think about it, God's promise is so big and it's so impossible from a human standpoint that he must do all the work of seeing that promise come to its fulfillment. 
or else it's not going to be fulfilled. So what's our role? It's not to come alongside God and say, all right, God, where do you need me to step in and help you out here? That's not our role. We, we, we can do nothing to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. It's all on him. But we do have a role to play. Our role as the promised receivers is to believe, is to trust, is to have faith in him that he's going to do exactly what he says he will do. I'll use those words interchangeably, belief and faith and trust in the promises of God. Then you throw into this mix the fact that we don't at all deserve for God to keep his promise Because of sin in our lives, our rebellion against him, it leaves us saying this, that God saves us by his grace in making us a promise we don't deserve by doing all the work necessary to keep that promise. And we receive his saving grace through faith in his promise of salvation. Church, that is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the story of God's word. And that's exactly what we have seen throughout Genesis and what we'll see again on display in these final chapters of Genesis. God is doing a promised work that only he can do and that he is by his grace. Remember, because we don't deserve it, he is also willing to do, which means that he then calls his people, church, to live by faith in him and in his promises. Church, Genesis 46 through 47 teaches us this. God's promise of salvation calls for the faith of his people. God's promise of salvation calls for the faith of his people. Let's consider the context for just a moment of what we just read. You recall Jacob had 12 sons. The next to the youngest, Joseph, uh, was his favorite. The older 10 brothers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They hated him in Egypt. Joseph spent 13 years as a slave and then as a, uh, a prisoner. Um, and then he rose out of prison to second in command of Egypt by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, remember, which was God telling them that there was going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Now, once the famine hit, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt, not looking for him, but looking for food. But when they got there, they found him. They found Joseph. Last week, we saw the incredible story of Joseph and his brothers reuniting. We saw there was reconciliation, and we saw that Joseph spoke these incredible words, God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, remember, what makes the preservation of this family so important is that the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3 is going to come through this family. So God keeping this family alive is necessary for God to keep the promise of salvation alive. Chapter 45 ended with Joseph and Pharaoh sending the 11 brothers home to get Jacob to live in Egypt. If you'll glance back to the last verse of chapter 45, Jacob, who is called Israel, that can be confusing, but remember God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So sometimes he's called Jacob and sometimes he's called Israel, but it's the same guy, okay? Um, Israel, Jacob, says this in chapter 45, the last verse, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And that sets up everything that we just read. What follows then is an opportunity for Jacob to exercise faith in God's promises. God's promise of salvation calls for the faith of his people. I want to share with you three truths, church family, uh, this morning regarding the promises that we must believe. The promises that we must believe. Truth number one is this. Church, we must believe that God will be with us to fulfill his covenant. 
If we are going to be people of faith, if we are going to respond to God's promises and faith, we must believe that God will be with us for the purpose of fulfilling his covenant. We see an act of faith on Jacob's part in the very first verse of chapter 46. He stops on the edge of Canaan in Beersheba. He's getting, if you, if you're, if you were looking at a map, you'd see him getting ready to step out of the land of Canaan into what's going to lead to the land of Egypt. And he's right on the edge. He's in Beersheba. Sheba and he stops there and he worships the Lord by offering sacrifices to the God of his father. After all the difficulties been through in his life, some of that was his fault. Uh, maybe some was the fault of others. But after all the difficulty in his life, he's an old man at this point. He stops before he na- takes the next step and he says, it's time to worship the God of my father. Now, when he says the God of my father, um, he's not talking about, well, it was my father's God, but I don't really serve him. That's not the point of that language. The point of that language is to make us think about the promises of God. This is the God who made a covenant with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. So when he speaks about the God of my father, he's attaching himself to the God of the covenants. And then God speaks to Jacob slash Israel in visions of the night in verse two. God calls to him. Jacob answers and God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So God introduces himself as the God of Jacob's father. Again, not to say I'm not your God, Jacob. I was the God of your father, but I'm not your God. It's to say I am the same God who made those promises to your father and to his father. That's who it is that's speaking to you. And then he tells him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now that would kind of beg the question, why would God need to say that? Why would Jacob be afraid? Let's think about it for a moment. You can probably think of some reasons right off the top of your head. From an earthly perspective, he's an old man at this point, and he's getting, to tr- getting ready to travel to a, a foreign land. That's a little scary, especially at his age. We know that, that he's probably somewhat feeble at this point because they have to carry him down there. They, he has to ride on the wagons. He can't walk. They have to, t- they have to carry him. Plus, he's basically putting his, his life in the hands of his sons who have deceived him for the past 22 years. That'd be a little scary. Then when he gets to Egypt, he's going to put his life in the hands of a foreign ruler, Pharaoh. Who's to say that when he gets there, Pharaoh isn't going to say, I don't want you in my land. Plus, God had commanded Isaac, his father, to not go down to Egypt when there was a famine many years earlier. So he's got a lot of things that would make him a little nervous about leaving the land of Canaan. But there's one big reason why this would seem like, I don't know if this is quite what we should be doing here, leaving Canaan. And it's this. Jacob knew God's covenant, God's promise was to give them the land of Canaan. That's what God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which means that to leave the land of promise probably felt like he was deserting the promises of God. And so God graciously appears to Jacob and says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is all a part of God's plan. Then he assures Jacob by making promises. God said, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. 
In other words, God is telling Jacob that he is going to keep his promise of making him into a great nation. And the land of Canaan is still a part of that promise. But in God's sovereign plan, it's in Egypt where he will make Israel into a great nation. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? Sometimes God, God's plans do seem a little odd from a human perspective. Leave the land of promise in order to gain the land of promise. But God assures Jacob that he will be with him and he will do exactly what he has promised. So Jacob's position now, what he needs to do is simply receive God's promise with faith, trusting that God will keep his word. Jacob may not know all the details. And friends, sometimes we don't know all the details of how God is going to work out his plan and work out his promise. But what is required of us is to trust that God is a God who keeps his word. Now, actually, we shouldn't be surprised by this move to Egypt because God has already promised that made a promise about going to Egypt. Now, he didn't use the word Egypt, the land of Egypt by name, but he made a promise that sounded like this back in chapter 15. So I got to go a good ways back in Genesis. God promised this to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. He said, no, God is speaking, saying no for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, foreigners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And then fast forwarding a little bit in God's speech. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. That's to the land of Canaan for the iniquity of the Amorites who's living in the land of Canaan is not yet complete. So from God's perspective, all that's happening is going exactly according to plan. God had already planned this many, many years before and told Jacob's grandfather that this is what was going to happen. Now Jacob's living in the middle of God fulfilling this plan, and it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to him, but it's an opportunity for him to trust the Lord. He has to trust that God is going to be with him, that God will do the work of fulfilling his promise, that God will make him into a great nation, that God will go down with him into Egypt, that God will bring him up again, that, that God has preserved Joseph's life. Remember, at this point, he hasn't even seen Joseph. He is just having to trust that these sons of his that have deceived him for many years are telling him the truth. Now, he does have Benjamin now, who he probably trusts a little bit more, saying, yes, Joseph is there, but it's still this act of faith. Now, how do we know that Jacob believed, trust? that God would be with him to keep his covenant promise because he displayed it because he stepped out in obedience verse 5 then Jacob set out from Beersheba he didn't turn around and walk back into the land of Canaan he set out that's faith on display it's faith on display friends genuine faith always leads to genuine obedience to God we cannot say that we have genuine faith in God if it is not leading us to follow God in our lives. And Jacob displays that obedience coming from faith. God has promised to be with us, church, to fulfill his covenant of salvation. I just want to ask you a simple question. Do you believe him? Like when God speaks, do you believe him? Do you believe that he, he will do what he says he will do? Do you take him at his word? Are you walking by faith in the salvation promises of God today, trusting that his personal presence with you will ensure the fulfillment of his covenant promises to you? Jacob didn't know all the details, but he knew that God was going to be with him. And that was enough. That was enough. 
Second truth that we see in this passage is this. When it comes to the promises, we must believe, church, we must believe that God will successfully save us. Not only do we need to believe that God's going to be with us, but we need to believe that as he is with us, he is actually going to succeed in doing what he has said he will do, that he will successfully save us. It's one thing to trust that God will be with us, but do we trust that God is powerful enough, sovereign enough, gracious enough to succeed in what he has promised? Let's say that you want to go skydiving. I don't know if anybody's planning on doing that this week. Send me some pictures if you do. Uh, but let's say that you said, you know what, I'm going to go skydiving, but you don't know what to do. You've never been skydiving, and so you are rightfully nervous. You're scared. You're, you're afraid. And so I see that fear in your eyes, and I say, hey, would it be helpful if somebody goes with you, you know, that you can do that with somebody, kind of strap yourself to somebody? Would that, would that be helpful? And you say, yeah, absolutely. This is my first time. I, I want somebody strapped to me the whole time. And, and then I say to you, no problem. I'm going with you. I've got you. Don't be afraid. Now, you would rightfully look back at me and you would say, uh, tell me one thing. How many times have you been skydiving and what is your success rate? Right? That's what you would say. If you don't, you're, I don't know, braver or dumber than me. But you would say, what's your success rate? And I would respond, Success rate? Oh, I've never been skydiving either. Don't worry about it, though. And you would look back at me and you would say, you've lost your mind. Nope, I am not tying myself to you and jumping out of a plane. You wouldn't trust me. Church, the opposite is true when it comes to God. He will be perfectly successful in keeping his promise of salvation. After all, he is God. We have seen him displayed in Genesis as sovereign over all of his creation. He is the creator, right? Go back to Genesis 1. He is the creator of all. And not to mention, he has a proven track record of perfect success when it comes to keeping his promises. That's what I want us to look at for just a moment. I want us to observe in chapters 46 and 47 the different examples we see of God successfully fulfilling promises or at least successfully moving his promises a step towards their fulfillment. Remember, we have to, 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 to see all the success in, verses four, in chapters 46 and 47. We have to remember God's covenant with Abraham. That covenant included the promise of land, the promise of offspring too numerous to count, the promise of making him into a nation, the promise of blessing those who blessed him, and the promise of blessing the nations through him. Those, that covenant, those promises made in Genesis chapter 12 that I told you way back when, when we were in Genesis chapter 12, said these are going to be really important for our, the rest of our study of the book of Genesis. We go back to those, and in light of those, we kind of scan our eyes back through chapter 46 and 47 and see God's success rate. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 46. Two times we see the word offspring. We're told twice that Jacob brought all his offspring with him to Egypt. And then in verses 8 through 24, we have that list of his offspring, all those names that I read a few minutes ago. Why is that important? Well, in verse 27, we are told that all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 
Now, there's a whole lot that we could dive into regarding the details of his family, uh, the details of the numbers that are used here. Now, I don't want us to mix, miss the big picture. In the storyline of Genesis, it really hasn't been that long ago that an old man and a barren wife, that means she could not have children, were given a promise that they would have offspring too numerous to count and that God would make them into a great nation. They struggled to believe God's promise, but now Abraham and Sarah's family of two who by human, from a human perspective, from simple biology, should not have multiplied into any more than those two, is now a family of 70, at least 70. Friends, God is succeeding in keeping his promise. Now look ahead in verses 28 through 30 of chapter 46. Jacob makes it into the land of Egypt and he and Joseph are reunited after 20 years, over 20 years of separation. Now I want to make a side note here. Notice that Judah in verse 28 is sent ahead to prepare the way for Joseph and Jacob to meet. We continue to see this theme. We've been seeing it for several chapters now of Joseph emerging as taking a, a role of leadership in this family. And it's also very interesting that the brother who led the way in Joseph being separated from his father is now leading the way in Joseph being reunited to his father. But I, I want to I keep that name of Judah before you because we're going to see in the next section of, um, uh, of, of Genesis, um, Judah really come to the forefront in a grand way. But let's go back to the big picture. God promised Jacob, remember, that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes. That's a reference to um, that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes when Jacob died. Jacob would be in Joseph's presence at his death, and there would be uh, peace between them. And, and really, it was kind of a promise of a, of a peaceful death. And through all the strife of Jacob's life, it was kind of a promise of a peaceful death. And then Jacob gets to Egypt, and guess who's there? Joseph. Joseph. Can you imagine that moment? Joseph, whom he thought was dead for the past 22 years, is alive. God is succeeding in keeping his promise. Now let's look ahead. Look at verse, uh, chapter 46, verse 21, through chapter 47, verse 6. So verse 21 of chapter 46 through verse 6 of chapter 47. Joseph's plan of getting Pharaoh to allow Jacob and his family to settle in the land of Goshen is described for us there. And what do we see? It succeeds. His plan succeeds. The brothers tell Pharaoh, hey, we're shepherds. That's what Joseph had told them to say. The Egyptians apparently didn't like to be around shepherds. And so Joseph knew this. He's very wise. And he said, you know, if we tell them that we're our family is shepherds, they're going to give us this land a little bit away from kind of the, 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 the hub of Egypt. And, and so guess what? They, they get to Pharaoh, they tell them, and, and Pharaoh says, yep, yeah, you're right, go settle in the land of Goshen. Now, why is that important? Why does that seem to be repeated over and over? Why don't you think about it this way? This settling in the land of Goshen played an important role when it came to God's covenant that he had made with Israel. Goshen was a fertile land outside the hustle and bustle of downtown Egypt, we could say. And what this would allow would, would be for Israel to one flourish because it was a fertile land and two because it was a little bit away from downtown Egypt it would allow them to remain distinct 
as a people instead of becoming completely integrated to them. It's going to be, they're going to be here, just kind of spoiler alert for what happens in the book of Exodus. Um, they're going to be here for 400 years. And so over 400 years, if they're in downtown Egypt, it's very likely that they're just going to kind of mesh with the people of Egypt and just they're just going to be a part of Egypt. But the fact that they get to stay in Goshen means that they get to remain a distinct people. Well, what did God promise? He had promised to make them into a great nation, their own people. God is succeeding in keeping his promise. Then look ahead to chapter 47, verses 7 through 11. Now Jacob, old man Jacob, is brought before Pharaoh. Sounds like he has to be carried in and stood up uh, before Pharaoh. And what does Jacob do? He blesses Pharaoh. Here's this old man from a foreign land walking into the court of Pharaoh and he offers a blessing to Pharaoh. Guess what? This is an example of God blessing the nations through Abraham, which is what he promised to do. God is succeeding in keeping his promise. Look at verse 12. And Joseph provided his father. We're in chapter 47, verse 12. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Their journey to Egypt worked. Why are they going there in the first place? To be kept alive. Guess what? They get to Egypt and they're kept alive. God is succeeding in keeping his promise. This go on to verses 13 through verse 26. These verses describe God preserving the nation of Egypt through the wisdom of Joseph. Guess what? God had promised to bless those who bless Abraham. Pharaoh had been gracious to Joseph, given him a position of power, is now being gracious to Joseph's family, giving them entrance into Egypt, giving them a land uh, to live in where they can thrive as a people. God, uh, God then returns the favor, if you want to say. He's keeping his promise. He's blessing those who bless the family of Abraham. Egypt has blessed the family of Abraham. Guess what? Through the family of Abraham, the nation of Egypt gets rescued. God is succeeding in keeping his promise promise. Let me take another kind of aside, um, but it's important, um, and speak about the progression that we see in verses 13 through 26. First, we see the people spend all of their money for the food, then they sell all their livestock for the food, and then they sell their land and ultimately themselves for food. On surface level, it might seem like this was cruel of Joseph. I don't know if you thought that when we were reading, like, well, that sounds kind of harsh, um, Joseph doing that. But we don't, want to, we don't want to gain our interpretation from just what it may seem like to us. We want to look at the text and what the text says. The people of Egypt aren't at all thinking Joseph is being cruel. They are incredibly thankful. This isn't an act of cruelty from Joseph. In fact, look at verse 25. After all this is said and done, they look at Joseph and they say, You saved our lives. You saved our lives. Plus the tax that he imposed on them allowed them to keep 80% of what they grew for themselves. Joseph is not viewed here as a cruel dictator, but as a wise savior. One commentator put it this way. He said, first with his brothers and then with the Egyptians, Joseph's wisdom is acknowledged as the source of life for everyone in the land. And this wisdom of one leading to life for many, ultimately, church, draws our attention to Jesus Christ, of whom the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, the wisdom of one leading to life for the many. Now let's go back to the examples of God being successful. 
Right? The successful promise maker. Look at verse 27. We get a snapshot of what happened in the years that followed. The text says, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Remember the promise of numerous offspring? God is succeeding in keeping his promise. Remember the promise of making them into a great nation? Well, you've got to have people. A distinct people to become a great nation. God is keeping his promise. I think you see the point. Church, God is successful in keeping his promise. He has a proven track record. He is successful in his plan to save. His record is perfect. And so we must believe that God will successfully save us. We must tie ourselves to God and his promises. It is our only hope. But not only is our hope in this life, but it is a hope that extends church beyond the grave. Praise the Lord. The third and final truth that I want to share with you as we finish up chapter 46 and 47 is this. We must believe. What are these promises that we must believe? We must believe that God will bless us beyond the grave. We must believe that God will bless us beyond the grave. Verse 27 said that they settled in the land of Egypt. But the final verses of chapter 47 are a foreshadowing that they're not going to stay there forever. In verses 29 through 31, Jacob makes Joseph promise to not bury him in Egypt, but to bury him back in Canaan, which is the land of promise. Look at what he says. Jacob tells his son, Joseph, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie. He's talking about his burial. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. In other words, take me back to the family cemetery and bury me next to Abraham, my grandfather, and Isaac, my father. Why would Jacob give these instructions? I mean, hasn't he found life in Egypt? Hasn't he experienced God's blessing in Egypt? Why not just stay in Egypt? Why not be buried there? The reason is that even though God's plan took Jacob to Egypt, Jacob knew his hope was not in Egypt, but in the covenant promises of God, which were tied to his grandfather and his father and the land in which they were buried, the land of promise. Now, we're going to talk more about this in chapters 49 and 50, but I just want to highlight Jacob's faith here. We have seen him have faith in God that God would be with him. We've seen him have faith in God that God would be successful in saving him and rescuing him. And now we see that he has faith that God will bless him even beyond the grave, that his death will not be the end of God's covenant blessings in his life. God had promised to go down with him to Egypt, and God had also promised to bring him up again. Now, if we think about that, it might appear that God is not going to keep his promise to bring him back to the land. I mean, if he's predicting, Jacob is predicting that he's going to die in Egypt. Well, what good is it if he's dead when he goes back to the land of promise? It almost, it almost appears that Jacob is predicting God's failure. God has said, I will be with you on the way to Egypt. I'll take you down and I'll bring you back up. And Jacob goes to Egypt. He tells Joseph, hey, I'm going to die here. But I thought God had said, I'm going to bring you back up. 
Church, what we have here is an example of faith in the truth that God's blessing extends beyond the grave. In other words, even though Jacob knows he is going to die, I think this is just incredible. Even though he knows that he is going to die in Egypt and will not experience in his lifetime the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises, he believes that God is going to keep working and that there will be blessing for those who trust in God's covenant promises even after physical death on this earth has come into our lives. Obviously bringing death. To put it simply, Jacob believes that even death cannot stop the promises of God in his life. What a picture of faith. What an example of faith. But church, in all this talk about faith, we don't celebrate the faith. We don't celebrate the, the, the act of faith on Jacob's part. We're not exalting him and saying, look at that faith, look at that faith. What an example of faith. We don't celebrate the faith. We celebrate the one in whom the faith has been placed. Jacob's faith was worthless if God was not with him to fulfill the covenant promises. Jacob's faith was worthless if God was not successful in saving him as he had promised. And his faith was worthless if God did not give hope beyond the grave. But praise God, God does all of these things. He is with us. He is successful in saving us. And he blesses those who belong to his covenant promises even beyond the grave, beyond death. Now, You might say, well, I see how he did that then, chapter 46 and 47, but how in the world does he do that now? I mean, I'm not facing a famine. God is not calling me to go settle in Egypt or another country to preserve my family. Does that mean the promises are over? Wow, God did that back then, but he's not really doing that now. Are there any saving promises of God for me to place my faith in? Well, no, God is not calling us to leave our home, go to Egypt to Be saved from a famine. That's not the call on our lives today. But that doesn't mean there are no promises of God for us to place our faith in. In fact, when we look at the big picture of what God was doing there in these passages and what he has done since then, we are to place our faith really in the same exact promises in which Jacob placed his faith. It's just that we have more of the story Remember, when God preserved Jacob and his family, God was preserving the offspring that would eventually lead to the deliverer promised in Genesis 3. That deliverer is Jesus the Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. The promise of God's presence. The promise of God's successful act of salvation. The promise of God's blessing in our lives beyond the grave. All of those promises are summed up in the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he did here on this earth. As I was walking in today, I heard I overheard some people saying, have you set your Christmas tree up yet? And I heard a couple of yeses and um, and some of you are already getting in the Christmas spirit. I'm a I'm a wait till after Thanksgiving guy. Um, It can be the day after Thanksgiving. That's fine. I'm I'm a wait till after Thanksgiving guy for the Christmas decorations. But I know we're starting to get into that Christmas season. What do we celebrate this time of year as we enter in this Christmas season? What are we celebrating? We sing about it. We are celebrating Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
God with us. God sent his own son to this earth to be with us. Why? To ensure that his covenant would be fulfilled. And what did Jesus do when he got here? He successfully completed the work of salvation. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sin. He rose up from the dead and he returned to his father where he sat down having completed successfully the work that he needed to do to purchase our salvation. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of God, to what? To be with us, to ensure his covenant would be applied to our hearts. So the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts, transforms our hearts as it awakens, as he awakens faith in our hearts. Uh, by the power of the gospel, he, he seals us for salvation so that that can't be snatched away from us. And he keeps us until Jesus returns to get us, even if we die before he returns. Because of the trumpet sound. Scripture says the dead in Christ shall rise. You see, the same truths we see on display in Genesis 46 and 47 hold true today, church. God's presence ensuring his promise, God's success in saving us, and God's blessing beyond the grave. And they're all summed up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this passage, no, is not calling us to, to, to leave a land to be saved from a famine, but this is a call in this passage on our lives to have faith, to trust God's promise by believing in Jesus to be saved from our sin. And remember, God's promises of salvation are a gift. We don't deserve them. It's his grace to us. We don't work to earn them. What's our role? We are the promised receivers. We receive them through faith, simply by taking God at his word, faith in Jesus. What are the promises we must believe? Church, they're the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ. If you've never believed in Jesus for salvation, then I pray that today for the first time you would trust that God is the promise keeper. And that through Jesus, he can and he will save you forever from your sin. If you have trusted in the promises of God, if you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, then I pray this passage would call us to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep walking by faith, displaying that faith through obedience to Jesus in our lives. He will be with you, church. He will successfully save you. And he will bless you beyond the grave. Praise the Lord. May our hearts be filled with joy and thanksgiving at the wonderful promises of God. God's promises call for the faith of his people. So how will we answer the call? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a promise-making God. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Thank you that you have a proven track record of always keeping your promises. Thank you for your presence with us that helps us keep trusting in your promises. Thank you for being successful through the work of Jesus on the cross where he successfully paid the price for our sins, success in defeating death by rising from the grave. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we get to see the 
completion of our salvation. And we know that it will be successful as we stand before you, having been washed clean from our sin as your people, who simply responded in faith to your promises. Lord, if there's someone here today who hasn't responded in faith to your promises, Lord, I pray that right now they would call out to you. Lord, I can't save them. No one in this room can save them, but you can. I pray that they would call out in faith to you. They would respond in faith, trusting what Jesus did for them to rescue them from their sins. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, help us to continue to walk by faith each and every day, holding on to your promises, knowing that your promise is to never let go of us. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, for how you have worked in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.